1 John 2, 3 to 14. God's commandments. This is how we know that we know him. If we keep his commandments, the one who says, I have come to know him, and yet doesn't keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his words, truly in him, the love of God is made complete. This is how we know that we are in him. The one who says he remains in him should walk just as he walked. Dear friends, I'm not writing to you a new commandment, but an old commandment that you have heard had from the beginning. The old commandment is a word that you have heard, yet I'm writing you a new commandment, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and a true light is already shining. The one who says he's a light but hates his brother or sister is the one in darkness until now. The one who loves his brother or sister remains in the light and there's no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother or sister is in the darkness, walks in the darkness, and doesn't know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Reasons for writing. I'm writing to you, little children, since your sins has been forgiven on your account of name. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you have come to know the one who's from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have conquered the evil one. I have written to you, children, because you have come to know the Father. I've written to you, fathers, because you have, have come to know the one is from the beginning. I've written to you, young men, because you're strong. God's word remains in you, and, that, and you have conquered the evil one. Thank you for listening. Vicious, no? We'll make a preacher out of you yet, Conrad. Now, friends, we're continuing our series through the book of 1 John, and we're entering into the middle of chapter 2 today. And as we do so, uh, if you've been following along, you, we, you'll realize that um, uh, something that may not have been immediately obvious if you've only read chapter 1, and that is this. John is making a case, he's, giving, he's providing us an argument for how the Christian life is supposed to be, to be working. He, uh, he does so as he lays out these three tests, three kind of ways for us to assess ourselves to see whether we are really living and whether we are really having faith in Jesus. So he's giving us, if you like, a rubric against which we can measure ourselves um, as people who, who profess Jesus. And what we saw over the last two weeks is that John has introduced his letter by sharing the gospel itself in, in a couple of short verses. He, he showed us all that we are walking in darkness, which is that we have sin, we have this deep heart issue that needs to be reckoned with by God. And then he says, um, instead of walking in the darkness, we ought to instead be living in the light, which is only possible if we are washed clean by Jesus' blood. And the way that works is we accept the free gift of grace that Jesus offers his people, uh, that Jesus died on the cross for us, that our sins are paid for by him. And once we accept that, we are washed by Jesus' blood and then we start living a life of living in the light. 
And so then John transitions into these three different tests that we can use, three different measures against which we can measure ourselves as to whether or not we're actually walking in the light. In fact, whether we're actually saved by Christ. And the first test, which we looked at last week, is whether we believe rightly. That is, uh, he's provided us this test. Are we sticking with the teachings of the Apostle? Are we really um, believing what the Bible says, in effect? Uh, Even when it says some very difficult things, even when it says things that the world around us would disagree with, uh, are we going to stick to that or are we going to bend to what the world says? That is test number one. It's, It's kind of the theological test, if you like. Then he moves on to the other two tests, which is what we're going to be looking at today. The obedience test and the test of the heart. And so that's what we're going to be exploring today, the obedience test and this heart test. So let's have a look. We, we find the obedience test in verses 3 to 6. And if you've still got your Bibles open, feel free to read with me. This is how we know that we know him, if we keep his commands. The one who says, I've come to know him, and doesn't keep his commands is a liar and the truth is not in him but whoever keeps his word truly in him the love of God is made complete this is how we know that we are in him Uh, the one who says he remains in him should walk just as he walked how do you know that you know something to know something in the way that John means it here is to have a deep personal, almost experiential knowledge of someone or something. Um, It's a bit like this, you know, when I was a little kid, one of my uh, dreams is to go to space, uh, to, to, to go out of the Earth's atmosphere and to be in space. That hasn't changed, I still want to do that, but, uh, you know, I'm from South Africa and the world where I grew up, I knew that my hopes of becoming an astronaut were essentially uh, as likely as zero. Uh, And so, growing up in South Africa, I knew the chances of being an astronaut were, well, astronomically small. Uh, So, South Africa sadly can't produce enough electricity to, you know, sustain itself. How were we going to get a space program up and running, right? So, um, so knowing that I would never go to space, I learnt all about it. I knew the planets as a little kid. I, I knew all about astronomical units, which, by the way, is the distance between the Earth and the Sun. Um, I learnt uh, all about Jupiter and its moons, the asteroid belt that you know splits Mars and uh, sits between Mars and Jupiter. I lamented the day that Pluto got demoted to a planetoid uh, because we grew up together. You know, we were close friends. I knew all about space, right? Uh, I didn't know space, though. I didn't know then, and I don't know it now. Maybe if I become a billionaire, I can afford a, you know, a, a, a ticket on a commercial space liner. But barring that reality, the likelihood is, is I will never know, truly know, what it is like to be in space. I will never know space the way an astronaut does. They've been there. They know what it feels like. They know what it takes to feed yourself when you're there, how weird it must be feeling to sleep on a bed that you keep floating away from, right? Uh, They know what it's like to be strapped in for the night so they don't float away. Uh, And this applies, in essence, to our experience with God. How do we know that we know Him? 
The word of the apostles actually can only take us so far. So if we pass the theological test that we, uh, that we think rightly, uh, that test has to be passed, but it can only take you so far. Yes, you need to worship God as He reveals Himself in Scripture. That's absolutely fundamental and true. But you can only study the Bible to know about God. The Bible teaches you about God, but it doesn't provide you with the deep sort of internal, personal knowledge of God. To really know God, you must come to a saving faith in Jesus. And we all need to come to this saving faith in Jesus, realising, as John puts it, that we are people living in darkness, but that we need to walk in the light by accepting this free gift of Jesus. This is an act of faith where we put our hope in trust and trust in Jesus to save us from our sins. So how do we then know that that's true of us? How do we know that it's not just head knowledge? How do we know that that is something that lives in our hearts? That actually we don't just know about God, but that we know God. Well, John gives us this simple test. He says, do you obey His Word? Do you obey? Do you take what you've read from sticking to the apostles' teaching, reading the Bible, everything that Jesus taught you about life, and then put these things into practice? Do we pass the obedience test is the question. You know, today is a profession of faith Sunday, right? Over the years, how many people have we known who have graduated out of the official church programs like Sunday school or CATO, as it used to be called, catechism class, only to be given full church membership, promising, you know, as we did this morning, to take on responsibility for their own faith and, and uh, investing in, in church life and so on, and yet slowly ending up drifting away and perhaps even abandoning Jesus altogether. It is tragic and sad and should make our eyes tear up because these people have, it seems, rejected Jesus' call on their life. But what John is saying is that because they failed the obedience test, they actually never knew Jesus in the first place. They knew about God. They could stand up here and say, by the grace of God and with all my heart I do, They knew about God, but they don't know God. And John is super clear about this. And the Bible is super clear about this. It says it over and over. If you know God, if you truly know God, you will change from the inside. Always. Your life will always, always, always be different because you know Christ. How is it different? It's different because you obey God's commandments. You change from the inside. You start fighting against the sin that tempts you, the things that you want that God says you shouldn't want. Sure, it's true, we stumble from time to time, but the change in us is that our demeanour changes from loving to disobey God to loving to obey God. Rather seeing God as someone who has uh, created the universe and has given us healthy boundaries and good boundaries to keep us safe and give us a good and full life, rather than someone as a killjoy who who prevents us from doing the things we really want to do. 
Sometimes it's true we're going to stumble and we're going to choose to believe that it's better for us not to get up to go early to church, you know. We can actively choose to do that. But over time, our heart and our lives will change. If you truly have Jesus within you, you will change. Your life will become more and more obedient to God. Always. If you know Christ, you will change. That is how the Christian life works. Obedience always follows belief. If you have a relationship with Jesus, you will change, you will obey. The Bible says this over and over. For example, James chapter 2, verse 19, um, he's talking about whether, uh, whether people should believe in God. And he says to these people that he's writing to, he says, you believe that God is one, good, because even the demons believe that and they shudder. So what he's saying is that simply knowing about God is no good. Some of the best, most militant atheists know your Bible better than you do. And so James continues, he says, you are a senseless person if you're living like this. Don't you realise that faith without works is useless? It's not true faith at all. Paul puts it this way in Romans 12, verse 1. He says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, so in view of the light that you've been saved by Christ, that you now believe, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, for this is your true worship. So because you now know Jesus, go and live for Him. Present your body as a living sacrifice. That's how it works. James again, chapter 1, verse 22, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, and so deceive yourself. James says that authentic faith exists only when you put the word, the knowledge, into action. Hearing can only take you so far. We must, if we're truly Christians, move from knowing about God to knowing God by obeying Him. And in fact, Jesus Himself says it this way, in John chapter 14, verse 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So friend, do you know Christ? How do you know that you know? You will obey. One pastor, uh, Matthew Carter, he writes about this in his book called The Real Win. Uh, and he says, um, he says there, when I'm uh, participating in an interview with someone we're thinking about adding to our church staff, I let, all the, I let other people ask all the detailed questions, you know, the things about how the job is to be done and so on. But then I ask the candidate only one question. I ask him or her, when was the last time that the thought of the gospel made you weep? If the person in the interview cannot answer that question, I simply will not hire him or her. Why? Because I realise that there is a direct connection between a person's love for Jesus and a person's obedience to him. Do you see what he's saying? He says if, if a person knows God, then you can trust that all the other obedience things that need to happen within a workspace will fall into place because that person will change over time. They can learn competence but they can't learn knowing God because of Jesus. It cannot be taught, it must be lived. And so the question is for us as well, just as relevant, when last did the thought of the gospel, that, of how um, lost and in darkness we were, but how we've been brought into God's glorious light, when last did that 
question, uh, thought make you weep? It's a good question. Because the gospel will always change you. And you will always turn from disobedience to obedience over time. Have you changed? Have you passed the test? How do you know that you know? You will obey. That's the obedience test. The second is the test of the heart. I read here from verse 7. Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old command that you've had from the beginning. The old command is the word you have heard, yet I am writing you a new command, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The one who says he is in the light but hates his brother or sister is in darkness until now. The one who loves his brother or sister remains in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother or sister is in the darkness, walks in the darkness and doesn't know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Now, I'll admit that requires a bit of explanation uh, because John seems to be stumbling about as he's talking here, right? He says in verse 7, I'm not writing you a new command but an old one and then directly afterwards, I am writing you a new command. Uh, So what is this command that is simultaneously both old and new that he's talking about? Uh, commentators are split on this. I think the best argument that can be made is that he's talking about Jesus' command to his disciples in John chapter 13, uh, verse 34 and 35. Jesus says, I give you a new command that you are to love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. And by this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. That's Jesus speaking to his people. And so... uh, Jesus gives his disciples and all those who follow him this command that they are to love one another. Uh, Now, the reason John says this is both old and new, I think, is because John assumes that the readers of this letter will have read the gospel book he wrote. So, what Jesus says in John chapter 13, he assumes that the people will have read that and understood that. It's pretty basic Christian stuff after all. In a sense, Jesus is just uh, reframing um, the the command that Moses gave all the way back in Leviticus 19, where he says, um, don't bear a grudge uh, against members of the community, but love your neighbour as yourself, because I am the Lord. So he's kind of quoting and alluding to that. So this command to love one another is an old command in that sense, but it's also new because it takes on a new character after Jesus' resurrection. Now remember how John sees the world. He sees the world as basically being in darkness. Darkness is this overarching term for how the world suffers under Satan's oppression, his dominion and his power. We walk in the darkness and in the darkness is death and evil and sin and all the bad stuff. But when Jesus comes back to life, is resurrected, light forevermore breaks into this dark world and the darkness flees from the light. And so it's in the power of Jesus' resurrection that the commandment to love one another becomes new. It takes on a new character. Moses gave the law to love your neighbour while the world was still in darkness. Jesus gave the command to love one another before his resurrection. But now this command takes on a whole new significance because it has been proven to be possible in the resurrection. 
And that's what verse 8 is all about. I'm giving you a new command, which is true in you and in him. Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. I think that's what John is saying. He's saying now that Jesus is resurrected, there is power to actually love those around you. You have been transferred from darkness into light. And so this command takes on a whole new significance in this world. And it then becomes this second test, this test of the heart. It's this diagnostic tool to see how well we are walking in the light. For as much as you know God and love him, so much you will love your neighbour. As much as we walk in the light, so much we will love those around us. John goes on to elaborate about this in verse 9. The one who says he's in the light but hates his brother or sister is in darkness until now. Friends, do you see how stark that is? If you hate your brother or sister, anyone really, John says you're actually still in the darkness. You are still under Satan's dominion. You are still bound in your old life. You aren't actually saved. John's a bit strong, isn't he? But he's not done yet. Verse 11. But the one who hates his brother and sister is still in the darkness. They walk in the darkness. He doesn't know where he's going uh, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So not only that, hatred for someone is a sign not only that we're still in the darkness and under Satan's dominion, but also that we don't even realise that and we cannot see it. We're blinded. We don't know where we're going and the darkness has blinded us. That is the test of the heart. Do you love your neighbour? Who do you hate? Because hatred in the heart fails the test of the heart. You see, there is no room in God's kingdom for hatred between people. Hatred normally happens when someone hurt us over and over again or caused us significant pain, and people will do that. They will hurt us, sometimes repeatedly. They will harm us in such a big way that, we, that causes us significant damage. But if you love Jesus, says John, we need to forgive that and let that hatred go. We are to love our enemies and not hate. If we're going to be followers of Jesus, people who love the Lord, then we are going to love those who hurt us despite the pain. Maybe this is why Jesus assumes forgiveness when he teaches his disciples to pray the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Being forgiven and forgiving others go hand in hand. Hatred has no part in the heart of a believer. But how can God expect this of us? Does he not understand the pain that we have walked through in this life? How can he expect that believers would really live like this? Because that's not how humans work, right? Hating those who endanger us is a very normal part of being a human, right? Isn't that how we live? Well, yes, it is, but that's because we've been corrupted by the darkness. 
That's because we love the wrong things. When we walk in the darkness, our first love is for ourselves, for looking after number one. And so when someone hurts you, threatening the thing you love, which is you, your hatred and anger burns against that thing which has threatened you. But now, as people of God, our love has become redirected to our Lord Jesus. He's the one who overrules our love even for ourselves. And so when we do that, our inner, um, inner love for ourselves uh, changes and we love him. And so we can let go of the hatred because we recognize that other people are just as lost as we've been. I want to read you um, a, a passage here from, uh, from this book. It's called um, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. This is an excellent book. These are the sorts of things I enjoy reading. Uh, but um, it's, about, uh, it's basically all the arguments for why Christianity is true. It moves from a theistic, um, like why we should believe that there is a God and then why we should believe that Jesus is the, the right God of all the options. It's an excellent book. But um, the author Josh uh, McDowell starts this book by uh, telling a story of um, how he came to faith. And uh, so he grew up on a farm, he gave up his, his faith as a young person, went to college um, as, a, as a strong atheist, met a bunch of Christians at a sort of a Bible study on campus, and they challenged him to prove that Jesus wasn't real, to truly investigate the evidence of, of Christ. And, and so um, eventually he becomes a Christian, and he, he says then, uh, after his conversion, he talks about how this has changed him. And I read here from page XXVIII. Um, perhaps the most significant change has been in the area of hatred and bitterness. I grew up filled with hatred, primarily aimed at the one man whom I hated more than anyone else on the face of the earth. I despised everything that this man stood for. I can remember as a young boy lying in bed at night plotting how I would kill this man without being caught by the police. This man was my father. While I was growing up, my father was the town drunk. I hardly ever saw him sober. My friends at school would joke about my dad lying in the gutter downtown making fool of himself. Their jokes hurt me deeply, but I never let anyone know because I laughed along with them. I kept my pain a secret. I would sometimes find my mother in the barn lying in the manure behind the cows where my dad had beaten her with a hose until she couldn't get up. My hatred seethed as I vowed to myself, when I'm strong enough, I will kill this man. Sometimes, when visitors were coming over and my dad was drunk, I would grab him around the neck, pull him out to the barn and tie him up. And after tying up his hands and feet, I would loop a part of the rope around his neck, hoping that he would try to get away and choke himself. Then I would park his truck behind the silo and I would tell everyone that he'd gone to a meeting so we wouldn't be embarrassed as a family. Now, two weeks before I left school, I walked to the house after a date to hear my mother sobbing. I ran into a room. She sat up in bed and said, Son, your father has broken my heart. She put her arms around me and pulled me close and said, I've lost the will to live. All I want to do is to live until you graduate and then I want to die. Two months later, I graduated and a few months later, my mother died. I believe she died of a broken heart and I hated my father for that. I had, not left home, had I not left home a few months after the funeral to attend college, I may well have killed him. But after I made a decision to place my trust in Jesus as my Saviour and Lord, the love of God inundated my life. 
He took my hatred for my father and turned it upside down. And so five months after becoming a Christian, I found myself looking my dad straight in the eye and said, Dad, I love you. I did not want to love that man, but I did, because God's love had changed my life. Now, after I transferred to Wheaton College, I was in a serious car accident, the victim of a drunk driver. I was moved home from hospital to recover, and my father came to see me. Remarkably, he was sober that day. He seemed uneasy, pacing back and forth, until he finally blurted out, How can you love a father like me? And I said, Dad, six months ago I hated you, I despised you. But I put my trust in Jesus Christ, received God's forgiveness, and he has changed my life. I can't explain it all, but God has taken away my hatred for you and replaced it with love. He goes on to talk about how he was molested as a child and he says um, at the end of it that he went and found the guy that molested him and he says this, now I'm reading. He says, Wayne, what you did to me was evil, very evil, but I've come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as my Saviour and Lord and I've come here to tell you, I prayed for strength and continued, Wayne, all of us have sinned, none of us measures up to God's standard of perfection, we all need redemption and, well, I've come here to tell you that I forgive you. He looked at me without blinking and for a moment I wished it wasn't true, but it was true and I had to say it. Christ died for me, Wayne, as much as he died for you. You see, friends, there is no room in the kingdom for hatred. Loving Christ, knowing Christ changes our position, changes our directionality, if you will. We move from people who want vengeance and justice to people who see our fellow human beings as wandering lost souls. And we can frame the pain that they have caused us in a way that reshapes us to be able to love people. It provides meaning when we start to see people who hurt us and be able to say, look, there I am too, but for the grace of God, there go I. And that starts to cause us to have compassion for the lost and wandering soul. It is this changed relationship with the world, as we change our relationship with Jesus, that changes how we re react to people. There is no space for hatred in the heart of a believer. That is the test of the heart. And so the question this morning, friends, is do you know about God or do you know God? How do you know that you know? You know that you know because you obey him and you know that you know because you love those around you. Is that you? It's my prayer that as you reflect on this this morning that God would take you a deeper step into love for Christ so that you may obey and that you may love. Let me pray. Oh Lord, you challenge us each week again with your word. Last week we looked at this theological test. Do we believe rightly? Do we stick to the truths of scripture? What a wonderful test that is to keep us on the straight and narrow, taking your word as the source of our life. But this morning we are challenged again with the test of obedience and the test of love the test of the heart. 
Lord, again, we see how far short we fall of the love and the perfection that you require of us. Lord, may we throw ourselves on your mercy in Jesus Christ. May what he has done for us on the cross cause us to weep deep inside. May you even right now open up our hearts to change through your Holy Spirit. May we today take a next step or perhaps even our first step towards Jesus. We pray that your Holy Spirit will powerfully work on us today. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen.